I want to introduce you to a dog this morning. This dog's name is Sizu, I believe. It's named after a Disney character that I've not seen the Disney movie. So if I mispronounce it, I apologize. But it's S-I-S-U, Sizu, um, is this dog's name. And this dog lives in North Carolina. And uh, he became notorious uh, because he somehow ended up at a local Dollar General, um, which could be a thousand different places, I'm sure, in rural North Carolina like it is in rural Missouri. So uh, he showed up at a Dollar General. Um, they don't know how he got there, uh, but he uh, would make his way every time someone would leave or open the doors, he would make his way inside the Dollar General and he would make a beeline straight for the toy aisle every time. And uh, there was a, I called this a dinosaur in first service and I, uh, I was wrong. And I want to admit that because I was told by a number of ladies that that is not a dinosaur, that is a unicorn. So I apologize for not knowing my mythical creatures, um, but this is a unicorn um, that was on the toy aisle at the Dollar General. And so the dog would go to that, grab it, they would rescue the, uh, the unicorn and get the dog out. And as soon as the doors would open, uh, Sizu would be back in the store. And this just kept happening. So finally, the Dollar General employees locked the doors, called Animal Control, and Animal Control arrived. And Sisu did not want to go with them. He, he was not uh, having it. He was not at peace at all. And so eventually the animal control person uh, decided that it's only $10. Uh, so they went and bought the unicorn and gave it to Sisu. And Sisu was quite content to go with them wherever they wanted to go because Sisu had his, uh, his unicorn. Right? And so we don't, they don't know what draw, drew him to that. If someone he used to live with had one of those, they don't know. But it, it brought him great peace to have this unicorn in his life. And so the question I have for you is, what is it that brings you peace? Um, if it's a purple unicorn, let's talk after church, okay? Um, but uh, if it's not, it's probably something different. If I was to answer, ask that question, all of us, whether it's intentional or unintentional, spoken or unspoken, um, we have something that we're drawn to, we think that's going to bring us peace. Um, for Sisu, it was a stuffed animal, and once he had that thing, he was content. And, and for us, it may be success in some level. It may be a certain financial standing. It may be certain uh, career aspirations. It may be certain family accomplishments. It could be a lot of different things. What do we think is going to bring us peace in life? It's an important question. Jesus shows up, and he offers us peace. In John 14 and other places, he, he mentions that the peace he gives us is different than the way the world gives us peace. And so today we're going to kind of contrast that a little bit. We've been in this series where we uh, started last week, this little mini-series leading up to Easter, where we're looking at how the resurrection made a difference in the Apostle Paul's life. Michael last week introduced us to the idea that resurrection brings change and that you can't Come face to face with the resurrected Jesus and leave unaffected. You're going to be changed towards God, away from God, but you're going to be changed. You can't be unchanged by that experience. Um, today, we want to look at the idea of celebration and peace. The idea that when Christ's resurrection becomes real in our life, it creates this sense of a, a soul, not a life necessarily, but a soul at least, that is celebrating the truth of that, and that produces a level of peace. 
And so uh, we're going to look at a story from Acts chapter 16. We'll look there first. Um, and, and just I, w- I want to take us to the city of Philippi where Paul and Silas have been doing ministry there. Uh, they have had a number of experiences already by the time we get to the text we're going to read today. But our specific context is that Paul and Silas have been in the city and there was a young lady there who uh, Luke records is, was demon-possessed. And through that uh, possession, she had the ability to do certain things that men in her life were exploiting her for profits. And so they were using her um, to make money. And so Paul eventually, through a several series of conversations with them, um, cast the demon out and she is healed and she is restored and loses that gift, which made those who were exploiting her quite upset. In Acts chapter 16, verse 19 and following, you find the aftermath of that. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And then you find this verse, at least the first part of it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were... And I left off the answer. Some of you know the answer, but just stop, stop there with me before you get to that. Stop there. At midnight, Paul and Silas, after the day they've just had, were what? Oh, no, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. That, we weren't supposed to answer. I know we don't talk back and forth much, but you were right in what you said, but I didn't want you to answer. So hold that thought, okay? Because you just stole my thunder. No, no, this sermon, sermon just got cut in half, so it's good. I'm kidding. It didn't. <laughs> and so, uh, what... What, what would be the normal response to most of the people that you know, maybe even you, after being treated so poorly for simply doing an act of kindness to this young lady they had healed? Think about their day. An angry mob had seized them and probably done some harm. It's a scary thing to be caught up into an angry mob. They were racially insulted and lied about. They were stripped down in public. They were beaten severely with rods. And then to cap it all off, they're thrown into a prison cell with their feet in stocks, which would have left them very uncomfortable all night long. And so what would be your attitude and response throughout your night if that was your day? What would it look like? Well, would it look like this in Acts 16, verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I will be the first to admit that that's probably not the way that my story would read if I had had that day. Maybe you could share that. Where does that kind of attitude come from? Well, at least one place it comes from is from believing that your life is secured and attached to something bigger than your present circumstances and that it promises hope and security beyond your present troubles, be they ever so severe. And the resurrection of Jesus certainly fits that category. So why is Paul and Silas, why are Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns to God after the day they've had? 
I believe the resurrection of Jesus certainly provided for them a peace, a soul that celebrated all that God had done for them through Christ, a peace that was rooted in something outside of their present painful situation. So they chose, instead of a negative response, they chose to worship instead of worrying. They chose to lift up Jesus, who they believed was holding their lives so strong, strongly, instead of lashing out at those who had wronged them. It seems, and I think it's an interesting thing to sit around and think, well, it doesn't say what they were praying about, but I think it's interesting in light of other things that Paul has written, things that Jesus had taught his disciples and the apostles. What were they praying about? I believe he's bringing his pain to Jesus instead of just brooding on it. I think there's something, I don't think Paul and Silas are disregarding the awful pain they've endured. I think they are praying to Jesus about it. I think there may be, if you listen to Jesus, I think they are probably praying for those who persecuted them instead of plotting revenge. Maybe they're praying for God to be glorified as much or more so than through this situation, more than just getting out of jail free. I think they rested in the presence and power of the resurrected Jesus instead of wringing their hands, thinking like, well, how in the world is this all going to work out? There was a peace with them in that prison cell. The resurrection should have this kind of transforming effect on all who believe in it, who are touched by it. Yet it does not. And why is that? In my life, too often times I find the negative side of all those things I just listed instead of the positive ones that Paul and Silas model for us. Well, I think one of the reasons that it does not have the effect on us that it probably should is that we are prone to seek peace and the things that the world celebrates. We are prone to look to what is it that the world around me just celebrates and says is good and is a source of peace, and I just look for peace in that. What does the world define as success? Um, I was reading a book, listening to a, a, a thing this week that talked about some of the world's definitions of success are be popular, be great, be successful, avoid suffering and failing, failure, uh, in other words, present an easy or a put-together life, at least to the outside watching world. And we like to think that by getting or having those kind of things, we will have a peaceful existence. But Jesus was tempted with those things. If you look back at the first temptations in Matthew 3 and other places where you read his temptations before his ministry begins, what was Jesus tempted with? He was tempted with popularity, greatness, success. A life without pain or failure. He was get offered those things. But he rejected those things as a basis for purpose and peace. And he chose a different path. Now, today is Palm Sunday, as, was, as you know. Um, and I think the biblical story of why this day is called that sheds light on the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And I think it stands in contrast a little bit to what Paul and Silas model for us in Acts 16. This story is recorded in all four Gospels, which doesn't happen very often. It usually means it's a pretty important detail. And so I've taken some verses from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, three of them, and given us this story. Now, before I read the text, though, I want to show you a map because you all just come alive when I show you maps. And so I'm going to show you a map, though, that I think highlights the significance of this. And it gives us context to understand when you read what we're going to read, this is why, this is the the the. the context of it. So here's our map. Uh, it's a map of Jerusalem. 
Uh, you'll see where the temple existed in Jesus' day. Um, you'll see the Kidron Valley there, that little blue line where the river flows. And you'll see that little green, green line that is a road that came up over the Mount of Olives, which stood above Jerusalem, elevated about 2,600 feet. Um, and there was a road that came from uh, Bethany, uh, Bethpage, other places, took you probably uh, to Jericho, I think, eventually. Um, and comes over the Mount of Olives, and then it begins to descend down into the valley um, and then it comes up into, the Jeru into Jerusalem, right into the temple area. And so as you read what we're going to read, I want you to picture that because the triumphal entry takes place as Jesus crests the Mount of Olives down into the valley. So not only was Jesus able to see into the, the city, as you'll see here in a moment, but the city could see this parade coming. All right, so get that in your mind. The, the picture on the right is a present-day picture from that place on top of the Mount of uh, Olives um, looking into Jerusalem. Now there's an Islamic temple there where the temple once stood. So you get that, okay? So those of you who hate maps, wake back up and join back in with us, okay? All right, so here's what's going to happen. In Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look at a few other books as well, but here's the story of the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany... At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a, a colt tied. Donkey says the donkey with the colt. So there's two animals involved in that, but Mark just focuses on the colts, on which no one has ever sat. So it's an unbroken colt. Untie it and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? I want you to say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And then Matthew injects, because Matthew was all about how did Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Matthew injects this in the story in verses 4 and 5, Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. If you look in Zechariah 9, 9, you find this promise saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Matthew includes that. Then we go back to Mark's version. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there, Luke tells us it was the owners of the donkey, said to them, what are you doing untying the colts? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and then he sat upon it. As he was drawing near, uh, back to Luke 19, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so he's crested the mountain, he's coming down towards Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I'll just pause there and reflect on that phrase. If you look at a map of Israel in Jesus' day, there's Jerusalem and Judea, that area right around that area. And then if you go north, you get to Galilee, where Jesus was from. That's where most of his ministry took place. But the last three, four, five, six months, he has spent considerable time in and around Jerusalem. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has done considerable ministry. And, and so not only were all of the people that were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem because it was Passover week, you would have thousands and thousands of people streaming into the city. But not only were those people excited because they knew Jesus, they were already excited about Jesus. But now Jerusalem and all the regions around that area were quite in, in enthusiastic about Jesus. I mean, not many people can raise a dead man just a few miles down the road here back to life. So the, they were 
the raising a loud voice for all the things they had seen continues on. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, uh, palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means God save. It can be both a plea and a command. It's, it's asking God to come and save us. And so the implications are, Jesus, you're going to save us through Jesus here. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, uh, again, if you look at who Jesus' biggest supporters were, they tended to be the more rural folks up in Galilee. The Pharisees, the Sadducees that lived and ruled in Jerusalem tended to be his biggest opponents. And so the Pharisees have this confrontation. And the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these people are silent, the very stones would cry out. And we'll get to a little bit more of the story in a second. But just get that picture, right? Jesus is riding a wave of worldly success. He is checking all the boxes. Is he popular? This great multitude of people love him and are singing his praises. Is he great? People worship him. They're literally taking their coats off and laying them down so his donkey can ride over them because of all he has done. Does he look successful? If you judge success by numbers and, and enthusiasm, he is off the charts successful. It looks as if there is nothing standing between Jesus and a throne, just that one step that he needs to take. And so you feel the anticipation building as he crests that mountain, begins to wander his way down into the valley and up into Jerusalem. Again, the growing momentum and enthusiasm because of Jesus' presence in this area the last six months has just got people ecstatic. There's great messianic, messianic they're waiting for their Messiah, expectation in general because the, the Jews were so tired of Roman oppression. It was heavy. It was hard. They just wanted freedom from that. But now Jesus is here, and that focus goes on him and all that he had done and said and was. Jesus feeds this. Jesus welcomes this. Jesus acknowledges, I am the Messiah, as, as he embraces this and welcomes this, uh, this parade. He doesn't stop it. He, he, he's in full uh, voice saying, I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. I am the one who was to come. So he accepts the worship. He defends the worshipers. One of the times we read, if you keep reading a little bit in one of the Gospels, he defeats them, defends them again. There's this gigantic crowd of pilgrims. Again, it wasn't just Jesus and a few disciples. There were thousands of people that would have been streaming through that highway into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, a week. And so they've got gigantic crowds. And so it just that sometimes mob activity goes bad, but sometimes it goes good. It just builds enthusiasm. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. They all would have been traveling the same road. So it looks as though Jesus is going to ride this wave of popularity and power and success. And he's going to leverage that because that's what the world would do with it. They would leverage all of this for an earthly kingdom. Except Luke tells us there is this unlikely response from Jesus as he rides his donkey down the, the path. Luke 19 verse 41 and when he drew near and he saw the city laid out beneath him in the mountain, from the mountain, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. There's a word, right? 
So what Jesus is saying is that all the things around here that you think are going to lead to peace because you think I'm going to get rid of the Romans and you think it's all going to be fine then, if only you had known what would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a bar barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every, other, every side and tear down tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Two things in that. One, Jesus is predicting that because of their rejection of their Messiah, that eventually this city would be destroyed. That happens in 70 AD. The Romans come, they encircle the city, and they completely lay waste to Jerusalem. But second is that word visitation. It's the word that indicates like a general who, who does a, a surprise inspection upon his, his, his soldiers. And so everyone, there's, it's an inspection. It's that visitation from someone in authority. It's the way that word was used outside of the Bible. And so Jesus had come. God had come. And this was not going to end well, as Jesus knew. And so one would expect Jesus to be quite pleased with this scene if worldly peace was what he was coming to give us. But this unexpected response of Jesus shows something differently. He weeps and he mourns instead of basking in the praise of being, that was being given to him. Just a couple of things here. There was no doubt in the minds of the faithful, of Jesus' faithful, that this Jesus was the Messiah, the heir to the throne of David. So when the people repeat their hosannas to God in the highest, they are praising God for sending them the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And they weren't completely wrong, but their focus was off. Because it was fairly easy for the crowds to get caught up in all the messianic fervor in light of Jesus' miracles and his teachings. They knew he was a prophet, and they hailed him as their coming king. But they had not grasped another part of what the Messiah was predicted to be. The inevitable suffering of the Messiah, as Isaiah would call him, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It was difficult for the people, even those who were closest to Jesus, to understand that his ride into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah was not an ascent to a throne, but it was a descent to die on the cross. And so the worshipers that day celebrated a shallow peace. A peace that they hoped would just come and, and it was political freedom was all it was. Which isn't a terrible thing, but it was deeper than that that Jesus came to bring. I read a thing uh, by Pastor Rich, uh, Rich uh, Volatis um, who just talked about the history behind the palm branches of that day. He said this, the palms that we wave and the hosannas that we shout speak to our real human desire for liberation. Every human heart craves for freedom, right? But also our human propensity to control the means of that salvation. In other words, I want freedom and I want it in my way. 150 years prior to Jesus, Judas Maccabeus had led the Jewish people to victory over a dynasty that was ruling over them at the time. The Seleucid dynasty, if you care. After leading them to victory, the crowd celebrated by waving palm branches. And so to commemorate the victory, the leader named Judas the Hammer, was his nickname, stamped an image of palm branches into the coins which symbolized victory for the Jewish people over their oppressors. So every time you used a Jewish coin, it had that palm branch on it, which was not only a statement, but it was a plea that this is what we desire is, is freedom and so 150 years later, 
When the Jewish people are under foreign rule again, they wave their palms in the air, and it's his words, not mine. They waved him as if they just don't care, shouting, Hosanna, save us now, is what that word means in praise. They are saying something significant to Jesus. They, in effect, are saying, rescue us and do it like it's been done before. But Jesus rescues us in ways that we don't understand through the surprising and apparent powerlessness of the cross. On Palm Sunday, the crowds wanted deliverance from the power of Rome, but Jesus was about to deliver the entire world from the power of sin and death. So when we wave palms as followers of Jesus, we do so with a different spirit. We, have, we wave our palms with a post-cross, resurrection perspective, trusting in God's way of salvation in Christ. So again, see the difference in thinking and perspective there, right? It was one group thinks we want political freedom so that we can finally get rid of our enemies. Jesus came to deal with a soul that was lost and separated from God. It's very two very different things. And so Jesus responded in an unexpected way. And that simply begs us to ask why. When Jesus stops and he weeps and he prays and speaks these words over his city, that is just inviting us to examine the, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Jesus rejected the world's peace that was based on popularity or greatness or success or avoiding suffering. He pursued a very different peace. His peace was one that went much deeper than outward circumstances being arranged as I want them to be. What, the, what he came to Jerusalem to do was touching the very core of our humanity it is a peace that is based in surrender. It is based in death to self. It is based in repentance from sin. It is based in restoration of relationship with God. And so Jesus mourned over Jerusalem because they were not interested in that deeper peace. This wasn't the first time that his heart broke over the city. Earlier in Luke, Luke 13, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus didn't just say these words coldly. His heart felt them. He loved this people. He loved this city. They wanted the world's definition of peace, though. And when Jesus didn't offer that in just a few days, they would turn on him and they would, the same crowds, many of the same crowds that would praise him as the Messiah would call for him to be crucified. Jesus mourned over this missed opportunity. Now, let's rewind, go back to Acts chapter 16. Fast forward a few years. The resurrection, the cross has happened, the resurrection has happened, Jesus has ascended, and this fleet, this um, group of people were sent out into the world as messengers of that great event. And we asked the question, why did Paul and Silas respond like this? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Why did they do that? when there was nothing in their life that would probably say, you should be praying and worshiping God tonight. Why did they do that? Because their view of the world had changed. So you can contrast these two different groups of people. And really, there's a contrast, right? Jesus has every element, check all the boxes for worldly success. And he weeps and he rejects it. These guys have none of the boxes checked. And they reject the, def the world's definition of failure 
and they find victory. They find peace in that moment. And I think there's a teachable thing in that for us about what do we seek peace in. See, these guys knew the rest of the story that the people of Jerusalem did not know that day. They knew that real life and peace have come through death and resurrection. They knew that no earthly circumstances could change the truths of death and resurrection for us. They knew that real peace is found in Christ and what he has done, is doing, and will do. And nothing in this world can really touch that. And so they can do all those terrible things to us. In our bodies and our lives may be a lot of chaos, as they were that night. But their souls were secure. And that's where their peace was resting. And so... You and I have to answer the question, will I choose to believe that and to celebrate that truth and what it means really in my life? You see, the resurrection of Jesus redefines our response to all the highs and the lows of life. If you were to take, if you're in some of those low moments of your life and you were to take those struggles out and hold them in one hand and take the resurrection of Jesus and all its truth and what it promises and what it does and the other, how does resurrection life speak into brokenness and hurt and abandonment and struggle and fear? How does it speak into all of those things? It does speak to them. It does. So if you're struggling, I lift up Paul and Silas not as people who just have it all easy and it's easy for them to worship because it's all good. No, it's their life is a mess. It's hard. They hurt. But they choose in that moment to allow resurrection, truth, life to breathe into their hurts and their pains. And they don't lose their peace. They've lost a lot of things, but they didn't lose their peace. But on the flip side, what if you took out all your successes? Maybe life is all sunshine and roses right now. Maybe it's all good for you and things are going really good. What do we learn about Jesus' example in that moment? Perhaps we learn that I shouldn't base my peace on how good things are going right now. Because that's shallow, right? Jesus has all the good things going, but he doesn't embrace that. He doesn't put his hope in that. It's not his peace. So don't allow the shallow successes to become the basis of your peace. So what does Jesus do? When you're really low, he lifts you. And when you're really high, he kind of brings you down a little bit. And there's this consistency. There's this, this evenness that we walk through life with. And so the lows may be hard, but they don't define us. And the highs may be great, but that's not defining us either. There's this peace that the resurrection life brings to us. And I love this quote in light of the Paul and Silas story. Because what was it that restored them that night? And after a day that was painful and hard, I think it was the story that their lives were attached to. And Rick actually says this, that worship restores us because it restores us. Through song, through prayer, through word and table, we find our place in God's redemptive narrative and remember that it has a great ending. So Paul's life, Silas's life, they were miserable, but they know as they reminded themselves of the story that they were a part of. It has a beautiful ending. And it's hard now, but that ending brings peace and calmness in the midst of some really hard things. And so... I, why is it important to walk with the Lord regularly, daily, moment by moment? Because the more that we allow him to restore us, the more he restores us. 
in the ups and downs of life, we must continue to choose to engage the message of Scripture in such a way that we are restoried and thus restored. It is that bigger story that brings us peace. It allows our souls to celebrate when everything around us doesn't feel like celebrating because I know these things to be true, that Jesus died for me and they buried his body, but he came back. And that resurrection made a difference and it gave my soul a reason to celebrate when nothing else in my life gives me a reason to celebrate because I know who holds me, I know who has my past, who has my present, and who has my future. And nothing this world can do or offer or bring at us can change that. And so allow the story of Christ and his resurrection to restore your heart and your soul today. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and our Father, we come today and just ask that you would be our peace, that you would be that sustaining presence that when things get really bad, that we'll be reminded that, that those bad days are not what really defines us, that there is something better in our life. But God, also we pray that on our good days, that when we feel like things are going well and maybe by worldly standards, things look really good, help us not to tie our peace to those things, but to be grounded in that truth of Christ. And that our peace does not come from things going well, but our peace comes from, from the Jesus that we walk with. So we're thankful for that balance and that peace and that presence that helps us. And so Father, today we just ask that in this room, there's probably hearts that are in every category, some that are in really struggling places right now. And Father, I just pray that you would speak life and help and that resurrection truth into them to lift them up. And Father, I pray for humility and perspective for those that maybe have a lot of good things going on right now, that we wouldn't uh, forsake enjoying them, but we would at least bring some, some balance to them and we remind ourselves where our peace really comes from. So Lord, we ask for that peace of Christ. And Father, as Paul and Silas did in that prison cell, may we choose that which is good. May we choose that which focuses our hearts and our minds and our attentions upon Christ and his story. That may not be an easy thing for us to do, Father, but give us the help to do that. Help us to have the will to do that. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.